October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenus History Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 31, Irony of the Century. Last time, we talked about the aftermath of the Second World War and how the Avenus Church rebuilt both people and institutions around the world. They had a lot to rebuild, and they bought a lot of shoes. And if you don't know what in the world I'm talking about, just go ahead and listen to that episode if you haven't had a chance yet. All right, we're going to step back in this episode to January 1944, at the beginning of the centennial year of the Avenus movement. Now, this may seem a little out of order since we just covered the aftermath of the Second World War, but I wanted to finish telling the story of the church during the war years before we take up another topic. And, well, we're done with the church during the war years, so let's take up another topic. Here we are. It's 1944, and General Conference President James McElhaney marked the occasion with an editorial in the review, recounting the incredible progress Avenus had made in the past 100 years. He wrote, quote, No place has been too inaccessible, no hardships too great, to hinder the heroes of the Advent message. End quote. Now, be that as it may, you know, they're all heroes and all that, there was a palpable sense of irony that Adventists were celebrating this milestone. Francis Nichol, editor of the Review, met the scandal head-on, saying that 1944 marked a time which, quote, no pioneer of the Second Advent movement ever expected this sinful world to reach, end quote. And then he went on, quote, This is an evident, undebatable fact of history. Nothing is to be gained by closing our eyes to it or by seeking in any way to blur it. We never make any worthwhile progress along the road of right thinking by shutting our eyes to a fact. Whether we like it or not, we must always reckon with facts, and the facts of history are the most stubborn ones of all. End quote. Now, Nickel was saying, basically, look, we've been preaching the end of the world for a hundred years. And that scandalizes some people, right? Like, why are we celebrating the fact that we're still here after a hundred years? A hundred years after a Baptist minister named William Miller said Jesus is going to come in 1844. This isn't something to celebrate. This isn't something to really make a big deal about. It's something to lament. It's something to do some soul searching about. Okay, I, I don't know exactly what everyday Adventists were saying, but the fact that Nickel wrote this article so defensive suggests that there was some common criticism, at least loud enough to reach the ear of the editor of the Review and Herald. People were saying, apparently, this is embarrassing that we're here. Maybe... We were wrong about 1844 because here we are 100 years later. So Nickel has to make a point out of saying, on the one hand, as we're going to get into later on in this episode, 1844 is important. On the other hand, he's telling other people that, hey, we, we have to acknowledge the reality, the fact. He uses that word fact all the time. 
we have to acknowledge the fact that we're still here. We can't just bury our heads in the sand and just, you know, stick our fingers in our ear. I'm going to mix these metaphors up here and just say, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming. Like we have to acknowledge that we're still here. And that that's disappointing. Should we call this the second, maybe not great disappointment, but it's disappointing that we're still here. Now, he went on in the article to argue that the 2300-year prophecy that ended in 1844, that after that there's no more time prophecies, there's no more great empires expected to rise and fall. Adventists were tasked with the job to just keep preaching their message and, and remain faithful until Jesus does come. Still expected this to be soon. Reminding them that, look, we're, we're, it's not that we're wrong in our interpretation. There's nothing left to look forward to in terms of time prophecy, in terms of world empires. We're at the end. In another place, someone said that we're on borrowed time now. We just have to stay faithful. Later at the Spring Council, the one at the Stevens Hotel in Chicago, where Black Avenue won approval to set up their own conferences, McElhaney devoted his Sabbath sermon, not to that topic, but to the irony that Jesus had not yet returned. Some today, he said, quote, are apologizing for our still being here 100 years after the beginning of this message. Some are emphasizing their regret over the fact that the Lord has not yet come. Some are emphasizing the mistakes and failures of the church. Some even are emphasizing their lack of interest in the Lord's coming by failing to preach about it. End quote. While war blazed across the continents, McElhaney was concerned with a lack of what he called Advent consciousness. He recounted his earliest years listening to Ellen White and the other pioneers preach countless times. McElhaney said that the message that Jesus was going to come soon saturated us and possessed our very beings. And then he's added, nothing was more vivid, more real, or more outstanding to him and his friends in those days. Just reflect for a moment, if you will, on the language that McElhaney is using to describe the, 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 the grip of Jesus' soon return on him at the turn of the century, 1800s moving into the 1900s. It saturated us. It possessed our very beings. Nothing was more vivid, more real, or more outstanding. Simply put, he said, we had an Advent consciousness. Now, his sermon was punctuated by shouts of amen from his audience so that he could sometimes just hardly string two sentences together without being interrupted by them. Let me give you an example here from his sermon. I'm going to quote him. He says, There is nothing more surely laid down in the word of God than the fact that this message will triumph. Amen. And I want to triumph with it. Amen. I want to stand with the redeemed. Amen. Those amens came fast. I, I don't know that James McElhaney was a particularly outstanding preacher. Okay, I'm sure he's very competent. I just, I don't see a lot of references to, you know, him being like HMS Richards or something, him being praised for his eloquence and all that kind of stuff. 
I'm sure he was a very capable preacher. And and so I, I, I think that those amens are not a response to his eloquence or passion, but to a shared feeling that Adventists in 1944 were losing that Advent consciousness. I want, McElhaney proclaimed, to recreate an Advent atmosphere everywhere. It seems the people he was speaking to, the leaders in the church, agreed. They were losing something. They sensed it, and they wanted it back. Now, you only need to listen to this sermon for a few minutes to realize that this was more than a sermon. It was a manifesto. It was McElhaney's presidential vision for the church. First, he counseled preachers that while, quote, a thousand topics invite our attention— we must not turn away from them and put the emphasis upon the thing of highest importance, end quote, meaning the soon return of Jesus. McElhaney believed that Adventists were not called to cover every topic in the Bible, to become scholars of every field out there. Some topics were more urgent than others. Now, I've noted in a previous episode how the Adventist church was growing despite losing an alarming number of their members and that this concerned church leaders. It's not a unique situation to Adventists back then or now. Many, many churches are going through that. They're, they're just bleeding members, even while they may be baptizing even more. Still, a lot of people just walking out the back door, right? And this is concerning to church leaders, of course. Well, McElhaney had the cure for that. If only Adventist preachers could regain their focus on the three angels message, which was an, another name for the urgent collection of truths that Adventists felt called to proclaim in the last days. Well, if only we could get that three angels message back, then the church would stop bleeding members. He said, quote, the preaching that will win the people from the world and lead them to give up the world that will change all their habits and customs in life and lead them to throw in their lot with this movement is the preaching that will hold them in the message, end quote. That emphasis is his. The preaching that will win people is the preaching that will hold people, he's arguing. Now, second, McElhaney told his congregation that Adventist schools needed to stop worrying so much about what he called higher degrees and scholarship. You remember that uh, accreditation was a concern, was a very hot topic throughout the 1930s and even into the 1940s. Should we... Should we agree to the standards that are being set so that we can offer certain degrees? That kind of takes, it's still a somewhat controversial thing today. Just a, a little personal anecdote. I know when I was about ready for college, I had the option to go to several different places in the Adventist world that were not accredited, that portrayed themselves as, we're going to teach you Adventism pure and simple, those, those, those accredited Adventist universities and colleges, those people have compromised. They have to give you classes that some accrediting body insists that they give you, you know, that, that aren't necessarily Adventist. Right? Like, so the tension is still there, okay? That's all I'm trying to say. Uh, but McElhaney was worried about this, these, these high degrees in scholarship, and he told his congregation that it should be the goal of Adventist schools to impress the young people with the great importance of the truth of the Lord's coming. Those are his words. And that brought another amen. So he continued, quote, Forgive me for saying it as bluntly as that, but I have a deep conviction that that needs to be done. End quote. 
We need to stop worrying in our schools about higher degrees and all of that. And we just need to teach these kids. We need to impress upon them the great importance of this three angels message. You don't often find a general conference president as blunt as he put it. Especially when talking about schools. But there you have it. Now, he did clarify that scholarship was a fine goal. He didn't have any problem with that, but it was a goal that needed to be subordinated to the higher goal of Adventist education, which is to indoctrinate Adventist young people. Now, I recognize that that word indoctrinate is is a bit controversial. It's my word, not his, and I don't mean it in a negative way. McElhaney believed that Adventist schools need to be places that were saturated with that vivid and possessing conviction of the urgent need for the world to hear this Adventist message. If young people could catch that fire, they wouldn't leave the church. They wouldn't worry about the earning potential of a degree or social status. They would live lives of service. And if that's going to happen, then the leaders of these schools need to be devout Adventists. And the, the congregation didn't even let McElhaney finish this sentence before they interrupted him with their amens, right? These principals, these these college presidents, they need to be the most devoted people spiritually and not just good uh, academic leaders in their field. So I use the word indoctrinated to describe his, how he, he thinks that schools, their, their fundamental purpose is not to make a good nurse out of you or a good engineer out of you or a good scientist out of you, but to make you a good Adventist. And the rest is just a bonus. Not that he, you know, again, as he said, not that he disparaged scholarship or or the intellectual life, he says, but just we need to keep our eyes on what's more important. Okay. Next, he talks about publishing houses. He lamented how some Christian publishing houses out there were printing secular books and even, even what he called good literature. Well, there's enough good literature in the world, McElhaney believed. What the world needed was what he called the message of this hour. Okay, next he goes on talking about hospitals and medical schools and how they tended to copy the worldly hospitals that surround us. You wonder which direction from Chicago where he was, which direction was he looking when he said that? Was he looking west? Was he looking north? <laughs> or east, maybe? Oh, there was another chorus of amens, right, that our hospitals need to stop copying the hospitals around us. Again, this is still a, a discussion point in Adventism today. We have many, many hospitals around the world, but when you read about the operations of the Battle Creek Sanitarium, his point was, McElhaney's point was, you, you read about the some of these things that were offered, and now we're worried about kind of updating our standards of care to, to offering just what other hospitals offer, and we're, we're losing something, he said. Again, fairly controversial thing today to, to even to have this discussion. Well, McElhaney was far, far from being the first general conference president to call Avenus back to the spirit of those early days. He wouldn't be the last. Church leaders have always worried about the spiritual condition and direction of the people. Religious leaders have always thought that all major problems could be solved by proper devotion, Right. I mean, the rabbi once said that if Israel could keep the Sabbath properly for one day, the Messiah would come. 
It's just, it's always been a tendency for religious leaders to say, if we could just get it together, if we could just, just hold on to it, if we could just be devout enough, faithful enough, consistent enough, then our problems would be solved, right? So I don't, you know, I think we got to understand McElhaney within that tradition of religious leadership. His, his sermon is very much within that tradition. So I don't want to read too much into it as if it's, it's, it's really something new that has arrived on the scene. Yet the sermon strikes me as more than that because uh, at least more than another leader saying what leaders are supposed to say because he outlined this call to return to the Adventist nature of, of, uh, of Adventism as a, as a program or maybe a vision for the entire church. Right? He, he's, He's saying what we need to do is get back to this, this word Adventist that's in our name. We need to hold on to that name and, and, and figure out what that means and live it. And not just we in a general sense, but local preachers, uh, you know, hospitals, publishing houses, schools. Like we all, we all need to kind of align ourselves with this thing. Now, see, the church had become too big for any one person to lead. But McElhaney offers this principle that anyone at any level in the church in any country can grab a hold of and apply in their situation, right? Create an atmosphere of Advent consciousness in your circle of influence. He could have boiled it down to that, right? Create an atmosphere of Advent consciousness in your circle of influence. If you're a hospital, make it a place of Advent consciousness. If you're a school, make it a place of Advent consciousness where you are where you and the people around you are always aware of the soon return of Jesus and what that means for everybody. Maybe that's not too different from what James White would have said or or Arthur Daniels would have said. I don't know, but it just it strikes me as like that's that's articulated in a way that anybody can hold on to that principle and and apply it to their situation. Now McElhaney was calling the church to to go from the good things to the great things. It's not that there was, not that the church was terrible. You know, he he makes that point when he's talking to the preachers and he says that there's a thousand topics that invite our attention. It's not that those topics are bad. It's just, you know, he's I, I guess he's like channeling Jim Collins, the the business author before Jim Collins, by saying we just need to go from good to great. We have a lot of good things that we're focusing on, a lot of good things that we're talking about, but don't let this focus on the good interfere with our pursuit of the great, okay? So if Jim Collins is listening, I'm sorry, but uh, you know we've stolen your, stolen your mantra. Uh, throughout the centennial year of 1944, the, the spotlight shone on New England which was divided into the Northern and Southern New England Conferences. In 1830, just to give you a little bit of context here, okay? So in the days when William Miller was about to start preaching, 13% of Americans lived in New England. Among those were orders like Daniel Webster, presidents like John Adams. I mean, half of the Ivy League schools were founded in New England, okay? But by the time of the centennial celebration, in the 1940s, New England only made up 6% of the U.S. population. They went from 13% to 6%. America, including Adventists, had moved west. But now, but now the time had come to remember the days when William Miller and Joseph Bates walked the sod of Massachusetts 
when Ellen Harmon and James White rode through Maine, when young Annie and Uriah Smith climbed the rocks of New Hampshire, right? Suddenly the church, the church which had moved on from New England is now turning around and fixing its gaze with fondness on its old stomping grounds, on the place of its origin, on its cradle in America. Daniel Oakes, president of the Northern New England Conference, considered the message of the earliest Adventists and announced, quote, here it was proclaimed with power, and here it is again to be proclaimed with power, end quote. Just after President McElhaney's sermon in Chicago, Daniel Oakes held a celebration at the Bordeauxville, Vermont Church, the old stomping grounds of the Bordeaux brothers, spelled differently, who were ordained in the late 1850s and did much of their work among the French-speaking people of the world. They planted the Bordeauxville Church, which, last I check, is still the oldest Adventist-built church in the world that is still being used for worship, I think. A uh, oh, a, a side note. The I really wish I could tell more of the Bordeaux brothers' story in Avenue's history. I don't I don't know why they they just barely have come up, and I feel really bad about that uh, because they live such colorful lives. I mean, I, I probably mentioned early in in this first season, uh, Ellen White having to coach Daniel Bordeaux on his wedding night. Uh, I know I didn't talk about Daniel's son being killed by lightning on the day of Ellen White's funeral. So, I mean, they're just, they went to Europe and Canada and America. Anyways, they they lived colorful lives. And maybe someday we'll do a bonus episode about them. Anyways, the Bordeauxville Church uh, was one of the oldest churches in the denomination, even in 1944. And so Daniel Oaks and other leaders gathered in May to recount the history of the church as part of these centennial celebrations. And it wasn't just the Bordeauxville Church. They went to the Rutland Church and other churches as well that had played that had played a role, that were visited by Ellen White in her heyday, that were visited by the other pioneers there. They made a, a, like a, they called them all-day meetings, and so they would go to these different churches and just recount their history and celebrate together, remember it together. And honestly, if I had a time machine, I would totally go back to these churches and, and write down that history. Maybe somebody from these historic Adventist churches is, is listening. If you have a history of your church, let me know. We'd love to publicize that a little bit more widely. Uh, anyways, in July, the Southern New England camp meeting put on a multimedia play that took people through Avenus history. Different young missionary volunteers, which is the predecessor of the Pathfinder program that we have today, took on the role of different pioneers, different Avenus pioneers, Millerite pioneers. Old hymns were sung. Pictures of the pioneers were projected on the screen. That's what might made it really multimedia. You get to see what William Miller looked like, and the whole stage was set up to look like a radio broadcast studio. So you get that mixture of this modern broadcast studio while talking about things that happened 100 years ago. Adventist history was divided into seven sections in an effort to make dispensationalists happy. I'm kidding. I'm kidding about the dispensationalist part, okay? It ended with the hymn, Jerusalem, My Glorious Home, which concludes with the lines, Lord, help us by thy mighty grace to keep in view the prize. Which sounds like the McElhaney's slogan for this year, right? All the general conference leaders, everywhere they went, were, were preaching the same refrain. The play was called The Remnant Church in Story, Picture, and Song, 
and it ended after an hour and 40 minutes. But it was very creative. I mean, it, it sounds like it was very creative. The biggest celebration that year, though, was at the Washington, New Hampshire church, where Rachel Oaks once stood up to her pastor, challenged him to keep the Sabbath. Rachel is the reason Adventists became Seventh-day Adventists. And so her church, which had eventually become a Seventh-day Adventist church, was the altar upon which Adventists left their offering of thanksgiving for their past. The Washington church wasn't very large. There were perhaps a dozen or so members there, about the same as when it had been founded 100 years earlier. But what they lacked in numbers, they made up for in pedigree. Two brothers in that congregation were grandsons of Cyrus Farnsworth, who had begun keeping the Sabbath in 1844. There was also... Lessie White, great-granddaughter of Rachel Oaks, who was there, still attending. And I can't imagine the look on those dozen members' faces when they showed up for church late in August and saw 450 Adventists descending upon them. Right? Can you imagine you're in a church with, with maybe 12 people? Week after week, year after year, you know? You, you just know each other so well, you've grown old together, and suddenly you see all these cars like descending like this invading army, right? down the road coming towards you, and suddenly you go from 12 members to 450, just like that. Well, the little church, of course, couldn't fit most of them, so the land around the church became the overflow room. Figuring that this was going to happen, someone brought some speakers and a microphone from their home in Massachusetts. People just sat on the lawn or sat in their cars and listened, just parked wherever, right, with the, the speakers, they could hear it. It brings one back to the old days when those who wanted to listen to James White would occasionally have to stand outside the school or church he was preaching in so that they could hear him. Except now they have speakers. Well, a different James was speaking on this Sabbath. To me, President McElhaney told the overflowing congregation, quote, This is a very solemn occasion. We are not here to engage in a celebration, but we are here to commemorate some things. End quote. McElhaney pulled out some photocopies of letters and newspapers from the 1840s that told the story of those early years. If these walls could speak, he said, what a testimony they would bear. Again, McElhaney repeated his call for Adventists to recommit themselves to the imminence of the second coming, asking, quote, what should this occasion teach us today? That we need a greater intensification of our zeal and of our fervor and piety and godliness, end quote. In the afternoon, Daniel Oakes spoke of the work in northern New England. The president of the Upper Columbia Conference, based across the country in Washington State, by the way, gave Daniel Oakes a check for $1,000 to do evangelism in what he called, or what was called, the cradle of the Advent movement. Right, The spotlight of Adventism is now on New England, at least in America, and everyone else is fighting a war. <laughs> well, America's fighting the war, too, but you get my point. And, uh, you know, and it's like other, at least one other conference is like, hey, we want to give you, we want to give you some money to do evangelism in this place where Adventism began, because it's important for Adventism to be strong here. I think that's the message behind giving the check. Well, after that meeting, they spent the next several days on a pilgrimage to the homes of William Miller and Ellen White, among other pioneer places. And as they were driving the William Miller's grave, one of the cars in the convoy tuned in to the Voice of Prophecy radio broadcast to hear that familiar hymn, Lift up the trumpet and loud let it ring, Jesus is coming again. And some of you are singing right now, aren't you? 
Anyways, McElhaney put his right hand on Miller's tombstone as they visited the grave with that music playing behind them, and he began weeping. Quote, what a coincidence. Here lies a man who preached the advent of Christ to his community. Here we are 100 years later proclaiming the advent truth throughout the world by radio. End quote. Tours of these pioneer places were a feature of this centennial year. Uncle Arthur Maxwell, the editor of Signs of the Times, made a pilgrimage with a group in July. They were searching for the grave of William Miller, but didn't know exactly where it was. As Maxwell put it, quote, one member of our party was sure it was to our right, another that it was on our left, end quote. After searching for a while, they finally stopped and asked a woman in a hayfield if she might know where the grave is. The woman said, indeed I do. I am William Miller's great-granddaughter, and there's father coming up the highway with a team of horses. All of a sudden, Maxwell writes, quote, It seemed to us that William Miller, his life and witness, were not so far away after all. End quote. William Miller's grandson, who was 77 years old, in case you were wondering how old he must be, and uh, his great-granddaughter, the grandson's daughter, didn't know their famous relatives. Miller died about 20 years before this grandson was born, but they assured the company of Seventh-day Adventists that they still kept his faith in the soon return of Jesus. They found the grave in the chapel William Miller built just before he died as a safe place for disappointed Adventists to gather and worship. Now, before sunset, Maxwell's group crossed the Poultney River into Vermont to visit William Miller's granddaughter in Rutland. After talking for a bit, the group asked her the same question they had asked her brother. Do you still believe in the soon return of Jesus? Indeed, the woman said, we still hold the faith. The Roy Froome dedicated an extra issue of The Ministry to explaining the history and the value of William Miller's movement for Adventists today. Francis Nickel, editor of the Review, who we had mentioned earlier, explained that even just a few years ago, uh, he wouldn't be able to tell you what the precise connection was between William Miller and Seventh-day Adventists. And he knew that he wasn't alone. A number of pastors had no idea how they were in any way related to William Miller's movement. Now, in this article, which, which took up the entirety of this issue of, uh, of the ministry, Nickel made four points. First, that Seventh-day Adventism did grow out of the Millerite movement, because apparently the number of people weren't certain about that. Second, that understanding the Millerite movement helps Adventists make sense of their own theological position. Third, that a continued study of the Millerite movement will, in his words, brighten our own faith in the divine origin and leadership of the Adventist church. Fourth, that Adventists don't need to distance themselves from the Millerites out of a sense of embarrassment. Nichols' decision to start studying the earliest days of the Advent movement, which you know, gave way to this article in the ministry, but also gave way to the book, The Midnight Cry, which took aim at the popular conception of William Miller as a crazy religious person and uh, tried to rehabilitate him, tried to give him his day in court, is how Nickel puts it in the introduction to that book. Wanted to give William Miller a fair shake. Now, Nickel wrote his introduction to that book, The Midnight Cry, on October 22, 1944. Now, the weekend of... October 21, 22 that year, were meant to be special. On Friday, a special service was recommended for the youth. During worship the next day on Sabbath, the pastor was to set aside his sermon and talk about a Bible study the church put out called The Challenge of a Century. 
That Sabbath was meant to be a day of fasting and prayer. On Sunday evening, another special service was recommended with the focus on inviting former Adventists to return to the fold. That's right. Get to church on Sunday. You heard them. The review had a special issue dedicated to the centenary, and it is phenomenal. Harry Anderson, a 30-something-year-old Adventist artist who had already done work for Coca-Cola and Ford, painted what would become the best-known illustration of the Second Coming, at least within the Adventist church, just for this issue of the review, just to grace the cover of this issue of the review. And the issue was just chock full of art and articles and just kind of creative layouts of text and images. And I'll, I'll leave a link in the show notes if you want to check it out. It's pretty cool. With the centennial year over, McElhaney refocused on rebuilding after the end of the war. He was, of course, reelected in 1946 and, as I've mentioned before, didn't particularly care for the job of president. In 1950, he was relieved of that burden. Years later, he was getting some hydrotherapy treatment at an Adventist hospital when someone approached him. And this this someone asked him, you were president of the General Conference for many years. How did you like it? (laughs) McElhaney, I don't think, took too long to think about his answer. And he said, I did not like it. It is too trying a task. It wore me out. I just, I love those really, those three really punchy uh, sentences, right? I didn't like it. It was too trying a task. It wore me out. Also, can I just talk to that Avenus who came up and asked him that question while he was getting his hydrotherapy treatment? All right, leave the guy alone. Let him get through his treatment and then talk to him. Anyways, I'm just messing around. James McElhaney had called Avenus to remember what being an Avenus meant at the dawn of an age of radio and television and atomic weapons. It meant, to him, it meant living as if Jesus was coming soon. It meant not fixing your hope on this world. It meant believing that the judgment had already begun and that Jesus was going to bring justice when he came soon. Adventists have been accused of drilling the Sabbath into people. I mean, emphasizing the fourth commandment over all the others. Well, now it was time to focus on the Adventist part of Seventh-day Adventist. This was the main message of McElhaney's presidency because He heard the growing volume of voices wondering if 1844 really meant anything. Were we wrong about that? Did we make too big of a deal about that? And he countered those voices of doubt or uncertainty by displaying great confidence. And that display of great confidence was exhausting. Now, I, I I wish I could go back in time and talk with McElhaney from the vantage point of the 21st century. First of all, McElhaney, get into Bitcoin. But anyways, uh, the other thing I would tell him was to uh, that we've celebrated the, well, I mean, he celebrated the the centennial. We've celebrated the whatever 175 years is. We are 20 years at this point of this episode being recorded. We're 20 years away from the bicentennial of 1844, folks. 200 years since William Miller is just 20 years away. I tell McElhaney, do you really think Avenus can be just as certain in 2044 as they were in 1844? I mean, don't you think that the farther we get from some of these important dates in Adventism, like 1798 or 1833 or 1844, that the harder it is to see their significance? Not, Not because... People are spiritually disloyal, 
or worldly or whatever, but just because of time. Time passes. Time erodes. Remember the Alamo. Remember Pearl Harbor. Remember 9-11. Remember the Anzac troops in Gallipoli. All right, like people are always told to remember these important dates, these important events, but it's hard. You can tell us to fix our eyes on Mount Everest, right? Keep your eyes on this mountain, but as we drive away from it, right, as time moves on, it gets smaller and smaller until even the biggest mountain in the world is barely visible on the horizon. Now, I'm not saying that Adventists are right or wrong about their theology. I mean, of course, I have beliefs about that, but it's not my place in this podcast to preach them to you. I'm just, I'm just reflecting on the humanness of our memory. I'm talking about the, the collective meaning of things. It's hard for something to persist in meaning for hundreds of years, no matter how hard we try to keep that meaning alive. That, that's all. It's just hard. McElhaney was calling Adventists to remember and, and believe and I would just love to have a conversation with him about what that means 100 years after 1844 or what that might mean 200 years after 1844. What if we get 500 years after 1844, President McElhaney? Would you still be saying the same things? Maybe he would. He'd probably tell me that he would be saying the same things. But I just think I'd love to have that conversation with him. In a sense, McElhaney's call was was really understood and, and taken up because his successor in the presidency was about to gather hundreds of people for another Bible conference to reaffirm people's faith in Adventist doctrines. Now, unlike the last Bible conference in 1919, this one was open. And do you know what the really cool thing is? The really cool thing. Just come close. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. We have audio recordings of it. And I'll share those with you when we talk about it next time. All right, we'll see you then. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign-up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign-up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.